players gather. They cast powerful spells, some the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Black Lotus, Ancestral Recall, Mishra's Workshop, and many others. Battling head to head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanral on YouTube, Thraven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. folks, and welcome to episode 34 of the Eternal Glory podcast, Eternal Weekends! I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Bryant Cook and Brian Koval. How are you all doing tonight? I think there's like a bee in here. I was hearing a buzzing noise. No, it is. Did I you hear that? It. Are you scared of the bee? I don't know. Maybe you should beware. Do you know that Jarvis U is part bee? So he's part bee and part robot? Yes, he is a bebot. <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> All right, so uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I don't have a bee in my office, so th- I'm doing better than Bryant. Bryant, how about you? Uh, I'm doing okay, I guess. Uh, we'll get to it. I, I mean, still a little bummed about my eternal weekend, but we'll get there shortly. That's the whole episode. Yeah. Why Bryant sucks. Yeah. We <laughs> have com. really long That's show notes yeah, for That too. also reroutes to theepicstorm.com. I haven't bought that domain yet. <laughs> I'm about to. All right. Um, on a more so- somber note, before we dive in and have fun with uh, Eternal Weekend, we had kind of a rough day in the magic community today um, and yesterday, too. So there was recently some secret lair art uh, to depicting Teferi and his daughter Niambi. I hope pronunciation is right there. Um, Which was this really, really cute picture of, like, a father and daughter. And it was on, like, Teferi's protection. And then the magic community decided to start photoshopping it in various ways that results in the daughter being killed in horrific ways. Uh, The worst of which was uh, putting her on Tividar's crusade where she was essentially nailed up to a banner that everyone's carrying around. And that was a that was a rough day. Yeah, that shit is not cool. In case like uh listening to our podcast or living your life in, in a humane uh reasonable way what didn't make it clear, uh photoshopping racist memes onto magic cards fucking sucks and fuck you if you did that and fuck you if you think it's funny and if you see it in your community it's not good enough to just not laugh like actively call it out please i just don't get why we still allow free magic to exist like that's where all the trash in the magic community goes why don't we just get rid of free magic yeah i that's that's not (laughs) a solution uh those people will just go somewhere else and also like uh ricky hayashi shared from the judge discord uh 
a, a photoshopped version of this card also. It was a fling uh, like, in which uh, the daughter is being thrown instead of being caught. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, not racist, but definitely like uh, Teferi, like yeeting his own daughter at the enemy for lethal, like is also in poor taste. Uh, but like, yeah, so it, it, it this is like the, uh, the, the big problem of like the few bad apples. Like it's not. Like, there are a lot of bad apples, and then there are a lot of ambivalent apples that let the bad apples roll around. Like, it, it's not about free magic. It's just about calling it out in your own little communities. So, uh, I don't know how much time we want to spend on this, but, like, definitely actively be actively anti-bad stuff, not just, like, ignore it when you see it. I just have one more thing that I want to add. This, this like, soul-crushed me this morning. Like, I got up, I got on Twitter, I, I saw this stuff, and I just wanted to, like, cry. The fact that, like, this adorable card art had been turned into, like, child murdering and racism simultaneously crushed me. And then when I went to Reddit to actually look at the comments, there were two comments that were, like, rebuking these and talking about how terrible they were. And they were so downvoted that they weren't visible. And these posts had hundreds of upvotes. And that was just like, this is, this is my community. This is, this is where people are at. Yep. All right. That part of the, the podcast is now over. In good news, I had a four day weekend and I got to like live the gamer otaku life for a while where I, like, stayed in bed till, like, one in the afternoon, just, like, chilling, watching anime, playing some video games, and then I got to play Eternal Weekend, and I actually had, like, a really good weekend to reset mentally, and it was awesome. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna jump right on that bandwagon. I also spent uh, Friday through mid-Monday. I, I took a half day on Monday. I went in four hours late and I work from home on Fridays, which means I don't actually work on Fridays <laughs> most of the time. So uh, I I had like all day Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then slept in Monday. And I just played in all three Eternal weekends, uh, the degenerate like Friday night into the early hours of Saturday morning uh, repeat. Uh, in between rounds, I was playing Breath of the Wild. I'm back on that bullshit, by the way. Um, I, I finally defeated the the last Divine Beast. Uh, uh, it, that that like part of the story is kind of awkward because like the the tribe you have to interact with is an all female tribe, and they have a city where only women are allowed in the city. And in order to like interact with that tribe, you need to find lady clothes and wear them. And it was it's it's like these ladies probably built this city without any men in it for a reason and I just get to put on lady clothes and walk among them and like it just felt kind of dirty. And then like uh if you come across like male travelers outside the city with your lady clothes on, they they like flirt with you and one guy like gives you a pair of boots. Like I I don't know. I didn't really like that. The game is still great, but I could have done without that entire arc. Yeah, uh, so that's a throwback to an earlier game in the series, um, probably multiple at this point. Um, and I think that was the sort of thing where, like, in the 90s, it was funny and nobody thought about it a second time, and now it doesn't 
the same idea doesn't necessarily hold up as well. Yeah, there, there's been like a number of like weird little like cringy interactions where like uh, the there's this like old lady who like kicks off your divine beast quest and stuff, and and she has an attendant who's like ah a boy, and then like blushes and like drops the plate she's holding, and it's like <laughs> this is clearly an adult woman, like she's never seen a boy, like that. Just these weird little like things, like exactly what you said would have been funny in the '90s, but we should know better now, but. That <laughs> wow, our our second social justice rant of the night, and we haven't even gotten through this. It's okay. Uh, Reddit will cancel us for the first one. They like they won't, we won't even get comments on the second one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, everyone already turned the podcast off. Uh, so speaking of things being uh, weird and terrible, I started therapy, which is like pretty cool, and uh, I, I've been like wanting to unpack some shit for a while, and I figured like during this particular election cycle and stuck inside during this pandemic for the like seventh consecutive month. Like this is as good a time as any to start. And is it I, virtual like, or is it in person? It's virtual. I tried to get an in-person cause I just feel like I would, res- I would like value it better. Like if it was in person, but uh, with my schedule, uh, I couldn't find someone who was, who was in the office at night, basically. And uh, most people aren't in the office at all, and then much less in the office with night hours. So uh, it's virtual, but it's pretty cool. And like, uh, I I think it's like important to talk about. Like, I'm I'm not embarrassed about it, and uh, like I'm not walking around on edge all the time. Like, I I think I'm like pretty stable in general. It's just like, you know, once in a while I'm like, oh wow, maybe that's not normal to feel that way. And uh, I'm doing something about it. And I'm pretty proud of it. So, yeah, it's always uh, good to talk things out. Yeah, I'm into it. So th- that's my big news, non-magic related. I watch, uh, I watch a lot of non-magic content just like while I'm going to bed, and I very regularly watch Jorbs, who streams Slay the Spire, and he started going to therapy a while back, and just to kind of unpack all the things about like being on media all the time, broadcasting a huge portion of your life. And he said one of the things that it helped him do was help other people more. And then he started, like, cultivating a community that was more open to talking about difficult issues. And it did awesome things for more than just him. Yeah, that's great. The the uh, YouTube and Twitter analytics have come up more than once in the two sessions I've had so far. So, yes, I feel that. Yeah, maybe maybe that's a different an episode for a different day because that's a that's an interesting yeah, topic. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So, Bryant, what's up with you? Well, we're on the topic of don't be a shithead, which has sort of been like the topic so far this episode. Is during like Brian, I played all three Eternal weekends, and I was up at like three in the morning trying to find stuff to watch on Twitch in between rounds. And I'm not going to say the streamer's name, but they had about two and a half, three thousand people watching them. Is he going to do this? What does he have in his hands? It's his permanent. That is such a turnoff to listen to. You don't know what your opponent's gender is. Uh, why are you doing that? It just, I couldn't believe that so many people were watching this and not a single person said anything in the chat. Not one. Uh, it was a little disappointing. Honestly, I, I could have said something, but I wasn't going to sub to their channel in order to tell them, hey, 
you're doing something wrong. Uh, that kind of like, I don't want to give someone money to tell them that they're being a dickhead. So I don't know if you guys have, have any opinions on that, but it struck me the wrong way. Yeah, we, we've had this exact conversation multiple times on the cast before. And like, uh, like I said, like Kibler is also a unanimous, like always he, the opponents are always he's and Kibler is usually screaming or sh- screaming, <laughs> streaming to like <laughs> 10k people. Uh, so like, it, yeah, it's definitely it's a small adjustment and it matters. And like, it, it is weird that these huge uh, people in their fields are still like off it. Yeah. And well, uh, this will be my last social justice thing is I mentioned in the last episode how I uh, purchased the boys. They arrived. I read the first book. And in the last episode, I was like, yeah, I'll read all six by the time the next episode airs. Uh, That's not the case. I just got too busy with life and preparing for Eternal Weekend. So I got through the first book and then a quarter of the second. Uh, There's a lot of like derogatory terms in these that aren't in the show that I'm not super comfortable with, if I'm being completely honest. Like I'm still reading, but like skeeves me out a little bit i know that they were written early thousands but rubs me the wrong way uh, i'm not gonna say those words in the air but i don't really like it that much uh other than that i finished lovecraft country which was amazing if you haven't checked i've been talking about it for weeks just go watch it do yourself a favor uh, and something that i've done for myself is i've been having a lot of back pain for like pretty much my entire life and I was reading something about someone on Reddit and they raised all of their monitors up on their computer station a couple inches to force them to sit up straight. I did that over the weekend, uh, right before all the eternal weekend stuff happened. I've had zero back pain though. I spend a lot of time. I work on my computer all day. Then I play magic at night and podcasting and tutoring sessions. I'm always on my computer. I haven't felt back pain at all since I've done that. So I raised them all up two inches. My side monitors are an arm. So those just went, went right up. It's been fantastic. Yeah, they call that like a desk neck or something like chiropractors and PTs have a, a, a name for that. And it's from exactly what you said, like sitting with your back arched and your head pointed down. And that can lead to all sorts of chronic problems. Yeah, so that's been a pretty great change in my life recently. The other uh, computer-related changes, I got an end-of-life security update from my operating system. I'm a Mac user. And I was like, oh, I guess I should update to Catalina finally. I did it, and now I've been facing nothing but bugs. Uh, I guess the Catalina came out in May, and all of the bugs still aren't gone yet. Uh, It's kind of obnoxious because, like, my Finder randomly crashes. I've had Chrome just freeze on me. I've never had any of these issues before. And... uh, I can't compress files right now through Finder. I have to use a secondary program. It's just like, how is this update six months old and Apple hasn't fixed it yet? I I just don't understand. So kind of disappointed with Catalina. And my final note is, let's go Tampa Bay. Let's go Rays. I shared this to Twitter, but the Los Angeles Dodgers have two players making $26.5 million this year, uh, partially due to the COVID cuts. The entire Rays team is making $28 million. Two players or an entire baseball team. If you're not rooting for the Rays, you're either from L.A. or a giant jerk. So let's go Rays. Ooh, strong words. Uh, so my grandfather grew up in Brooklyn when the Dodgers were still there. So as a kid, I uh, was a bit of a Dodgers fan uh, through my grandfather. So... Uh, but that that's long gone. I mostly don't care about baseball anymore, and uh, I like the Pirates. Uh, when 
<laughs> during the regular season because they're never in the playoffs. But yeah, go raise. I, di- I didn't know that money stuff. Fuck them. I mean, Fuck it's uh, like I watched Moneyball this week and, you know, the famous quote, like it's hard not to be romantic about baseball, but it's nice watching the small market team with next to no money go this far. Uh, I really would like to see them get there. And a short story for you, Brian, you might even know this, but a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, his father was a beer distributor and he would get tickets to go to uh, Pirates games for at, at least around 2010. For twenty six dollars, you could get you could sit behind home seat or home base and get unlimited hot dogs for twenty six dollars, which is remarkable. So, so yeah, the buffet seats still exist. Um, the the area directly behind home plate at uh, at uh, PNC Park also has infinite food, but those seats are not twenty six dollars anymore. They're like big cushy armchairs, and you get like a a wait wait staff who like bring you food till you're happy but there are like buffet seats they're up in like the club level like in in the middle level of the stadium and i think those are still 26 dollars. you can feast your face uh for the entire time i i've wanted to do that since i moved to pittsburgh and my friend chris has done it a number of times but i can never line up my schedule to go with someone who'd get enough out of it because like everyone i've ever dated like uh they would not get get their money's worth out of a hot dog buffet, but I fucking would. And I want to go with another friend who is going to like chow down shit, it shit in the Uber with me on the way home. Like that's what I want out of that experience. (laughs) All right. If you're listening and you would like to shit in an Uber, contact Brian Koval, Bosch and roll on Twitter. Uh, He has a YouTube channel, uh, shitting cabs with Brian Koval. Make it happen. Yep. We will record it. I will monetize this experience somehow. (laughs) <laughs> all right we need to move to the next section before i just like die <laughs> donations we did not have any this week or i guess it went through the last two weeks with the last episode if you want to keep our editor phil blackman at force of hell happy throw us a little bit of money uh not a whole lot we're not asking you to uh down payment on our car or anything but five ten bucks any amount helps yeah, we're uh, we're giving Phil some extra change this week to uh, get this episode out. We wanna we wanna be out there before Eternal Weekend Vintage version rolls around because the second half of this episode is gonna be vintage content. Spoiler. All right, feedback. All right. Um, I'm gonna start the first one since it was directed at me. Probably my favorite part was the conversation about sideboarding based on your opponent as a player. I think it's funny when Phil says about playing the long game, I found myself in exactly the opposite situation where I know the player across from me has got my number and I need to try to cut their options down and clock them as fast as I can because they are going to galaxy brain me if I let the game drag on. Um, And this is from Method Belly on Reddit. Um, I think that's a a really good way of just taking another viewpoint of my, my general idea there. Um, there are definitely times when my opponent is playing better than me and I want to take slightly riskier lines or do some things that are slightly riskier or slightly more aggressive to get that game over. Uh, currently, I'm starting to play Vintage, and I haven't played Vintage in a while. And there are a lot of times where I can play this lock piece or I can play this Planeswalker and minus it two turns in a row and get my opponent dead. And there's definitely times where I've erred on the side of a more aggressive line just to make sure that if I'm in a good position, I'm going to try to end the game before my opponent does something that I don't know what they're going to do and beat me. 
So there's also the fact that like sometimes what I'll do, and this is about your opponent being good at magic, is let's say I'm facing Brian and Brian knows that my plan is to board in Carpet of Flowers. So Brian might have extra enchant removal or Brian might fetch for all of his, you know, plains and swamps because I'm assuming that Brian's playing snow. I just won't board in the Carpet of Flowers. If I know that Brian's going to play around them, I'll do the next level thing and just don't side them in. So that's always an option, too, if you know that your opponent's good. Take advantage of how good they are at magic. Yeah, that always came up uh, back before uh, Ad Nauseam was banned by Veil vale of Summer. I would always have to leave in, like, two swords to plowshares in case they had Santed Swarm. And you just feel like such an asshole doing that. It's like, they probably don't even have it in the list. If they do play it, what are the chances they actually have at turn one? If so, what are the chances I have one of these two plows I left in? And then you just have the stupid fucking swords to plowshares in your deck against Storm. And then, like, you just get in that level system of, like, you know, forget it. I'm going to cut all four this time and hope it works. And, like, you hope that your opponent is on the same level where, like... Like, I, I, I like to think that my opponents had me on the level where I'd leave in removal so they wouldn't bring in the Xanted Swarm. So I'm right to cut all my removal, even if they are playing it. So that does get kind of crazy when you have like multiple big brains smushing around. I don't want to I say anything that can identify this player, but I played against a player in one of my Eternal Weekend rounds, and I was on a completely different level from that player, and I was unable to read them because of it. It's like, okay, so they did this, that means they have that. They did not have that. Alright, I'm going to make this attack. This attack is free. They can't possibly block because of this. They blocked. And just like everything that I was doing to try to read this player, like they, they, I couldn't read them because they were not operating on the same set of information and assumptions that I was. It was baffling. Some people just want to watch the world burn. So was it baffling in that like, they were operating on such a high level that they were throwing you off, or they were so far below you that you were just like, what's happening right now? Below. Okay. That's the, (laughs) that's like the classic thing. Like when you teach like your little brother to play magic or whatever, and you attack with your grizzly bear into their hill giant with open mana and they just snap block. And you're like, Oh shit. (laughs) Obviously he wouldn't know about bluffing yet. (laughs) And then you put your tutu in the graveyard. (laughs) Yeah, um, I lost that round handily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you can't dance with someone who is sitting down. All right, Brian, why don't you take this next one? Uh, another great episode. Super appreciated getting the unnamed shout out. They were the, a YouTube commenter that I mentioned last time. And big ups to me for cultivating such a great comment section in my YouTube. Yeah, we talked about that. I try to respond to all of the constructed constructive things answer all the questions and uh if you watch my channel throw out a question uh something that came up today though if you have a question about a specific play make sure you include the timestamp. i am not gonna pour through two and a half hours of video to find the exact moment you're talking about i'm sorry i can't do it but if you put the timestamp, i'll respond right away oh man sometimes i get messages on videos that are like six months old and it's like in game two why didn't you do this i don't know I, I like that stuff because that tells me that these people are so invested in you and your content that they're willing to watch stuff that's super old just to learn. Like to me, that actually shows a lot of value. Yeah, I, I love getting those like 
necro comments where like like phil said like six months ago it's like oh i forgot i even made this video it's cool you had a question about it let me do my best to answer it all right i'll grab the next one a good balance between casual life talk and in-depth conversation i felt like you all really liked each other from jeremy hines on our facebook page okay uh we sometimes (laughs) like each other i guess yeah i like phil a lot yeah me too yeah phil's great brian's great (laughs) <laughs> we've sold the lie that we all like each other yep we, it, it really came through all right i'll do the last one all right really good episode on sideboarding that is worth a listen a lot of important principles here that people often overlook um, and that's from lord darkview on twitter yeah so we try to make these episodes constructive in more than one way you know it's it's these aren't made for us you know, we can uh, we can sit around and BS without recording. We're trying to make things that are helpful to you all. And so, like, taking the time to go over some fundamentals and really break them down at an intimate level is something that hopefully anyone can glean something from. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that people enjoy it. You'll notice that we don't basically ever spend any time just running down Legacy Top 8s over the last two weeks. Like, that's just not something we do on this show. And because uh, that's that's fleeting, like that's not going to matter three months from now. But like someone could find this episode, that episode, like five years from now and learn about sideboarding. Like that, that's what we're trying to hit at least once in a while. Have a timeless one. All right. Um, normally, we have an MTG updates section, but we're going to spend the most of the episode talking about Eternal Weekends. So we're just going to skip that and go straight into section one and talk about how we prepared for Eternal Weekend, number one. (laughs) All right, Brian, why don't don't you start? Uh, So I kind of, uh, I think I kind of blew my prep. I'm not going to lie. So I had been cranking out video, legacy videos for the last month. I think I have like, close to 15 new videos over the last 30 days. It's one of the highest productive periods I've had on my channel ever. And I've played most of the decks in the meta, tried all sorts of stuff, and uh, I just thought I had a good feel for everything. And I I just picked like two of the decks that I had played in the past and I liked. Like I I played Sharkstill and Maverick. I had locked those in basically when I saw the announcement, and then I left Sunday open. I was going to default to Rug Delver uh, if I just needed a try-hard day. Um, it turned out that uh, I, I did not explore Snoko as much as I wish I had leading up to it. I recorded one league. It went okay. It, it might have been like a suboptimal list or like older tech, but on Sunday I played the Snoko list that won on Friday, and the deck was insane. Like, if I knew that that's what was going on uh, going into Eternal Weekend, I would have just played Snoko three times. Uh, I kind of feel like I, I wasted a shot playing Maverick. Not that the deck is bad. It's just that you need to play perfectly. You need to understand everything. And, like, I had two leagues under my belt when I went into this thing. Like, I, I really wish I had just uh, decided on Snoko and just gone to work, played a bunch of leagues, and played the same deck uh, three times last weekend. I have a question for you. Was this the list with Retreat? Uh, all the lists should have Retreat now, but uh, this was the one that had it in the sideboard. Okay. I did test the list with one main, one board. I was just curious if that was the one. Yeah, uh, this one had one Felidar Retreat in the sideboard. Uh, I, 
and th- that was the one that won on Friday. By Sunday, the Snokolis had them in the main. Like uh, I, again, I was slightly behind the tech because I was just uh, responding to deck lists instead of working it out on my own. But at that point, I was in it and didn't really have time to do that. But uh, I definitely could have prepared more. I think I uh, didn't take it seriously because it was like it's at my house. Like I don't have to like put people up for the weekend or like take a day off work and just having three shots in a row. Like the one and done nature of Eternal Weekend is kind of what's so thrilling about it. Like that's the only 10 round straight Swiss tournament left like on the planet. Everything else is a two day event at this point. So uh, I, I take Eternal Weekend very seriously. But for this last weekend, it was just sort of like, I don't know. I have so many chances. I don't need to take it that seriously. I also don't think we saw coming how popular this event was going to be. Like, we capped the Sunday event. And that's insane. Uh, What is that? 672? Correct. Yep, 672 players. And I, like, I saw that coming on Friday. Like, and then Saturday. Like, the fact that an event that started at 3 a.m. Eastern time, which is midnight West Coast time, uh, like, in America is like also got solidly 10 rounds i was like wow it was like 447 457 maybe it was some somewhere in that ballpark yeah and then the uh the sunday event started at a really approachable time for everyone in uh the americas so i was like oh man everyone's gonna be awake the europeans and asians are gonna stay up for this one this might cap and then it did Another thing is I knew some people on the West Coast that just didn't wake up early enough. And by the time they had turned their computer on, the event had capped like 45 minutes before it launched. I got a couple, like I tweeted that the event capped and then I got a couple responses that were just like, I'm mad about this. And like, I I feel for you, but at the same time, like, if you knew you were playing the event, just join before you go to bed in the morning. Like, I... Uh, like th- this is like the thing it's been happening for years like the first time a grand prix capped like gp pittsburgh that modern grand prix like four or five years ago and people were like i'm at my hotel in pittsburgh and just learned the event is capped it's like you bought a plane you bought a hotel and you didn't register for the event like give me a break so uh sorry to those who missed out but like unless you woke up that morning and decided you were going to play that morning then uh you had a you had a chance so, Brian, yeah. like you, I didn't really take it seriously enough, I don't think. Like, I knew, I looked at the time schedules and I was like, okay, I'm going to play Rugdelver Friday night because I can, like, Google Hangouts that with better players than me. And then at the 3 a.m. I'll play Snow because I don't really care about doing well with that deck. And then Sunday I'll record with TES. And I just, like, in my head, I had mentally checked all these decks out. And I was like, okay, well, I have three opportunities to do well. I guess I'll just do well in one of them. I started testing rug and I never did better than three, two and five leagues. I two, three to couple. I three, two, three of them, I think. But one thing that I started midway through is I started testing for submerge because Maverick was everywhere in the leagues. And so was Hogak. And with four submerge in your list, this is based off the winning list from the week before you board in submerge against Hogak. You can now set out all seven forces in both the mirror and against Hogak. And you're just super, Um, like you won for one, everything now, like you don't chew for one yourself ever. And eventually you just win. 
it was great. I was winning a lot of the rug mirrors, but it was just not beating a lot of the other stuff. Like I was losing to death and taxes over and over and over. And I just wasn't having fun playing rug, like losing, playing a deck that you don't actually like, isn't that much fun. So I switched to TES for a couple leagues. I went four, one and three, two felt fine. Um, but then I played a snow league and I don't know about you, but like it takes a lot of mental fortitude to play snow, especially at a reasonable pace. Cause the deck is so slow. And I was like, how am I supposed to play this at three in the morning? Right. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll try blue green Omni. Cause that's like a fast deck. That's, I don't want to say brain dead, but easier to play. And I lost a lot with blue green Omni. That deck is just like, it fails a lot. Like you'll, you'll get your omniscience into play. You'll cast a cantrip and you just whiff. You're like, Oh, okay. And then you're like, well, I guess I'll get one more draw step before I'm dead. And then that happened to me more than it should have. And I was like, this isn't fun. So I was sitting down, like, I think it was like Wednesday night. And I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to play the Epic storm in all three. And I didn't really play much legacy until Friday. Like there was that Thursday night. I had plans uh, with my significant other and then Friday. So I played two leagues with the Epic Storm to play three events, and I just did not feel prepared. Yeah, you did a lot more work than I did, at least a lot more specific work. Like, I have my videos I recorded, but that's it. Um, the The clock on Snow, like, you're so right that the deck takes forever to win. Uh, I was doing stuff uh, in Eternal Weekend, like, once I got a little bit ahead, just declining my Sylvan Library triggers just to save four seconds that turn and just get the game over. So it, it does require some like finessing and some MTGO skills and stuff that uh, are not quite intuitive though. Uh, coming from the, the muscle memory that I have and the play style that I have, I would rather work that hard and take my time three times with snow than try to like cheese with something like show and tell just cause it's in the middle of the night. But but I can understand why other people wouldn't want to do that. So I was really happy with my prep for Eternal Weekend. There are tournaments where you do things right, and there's tournaments where you did do things wrong. And I, I feel like I prepared well for this one. Um, I had tested 12 different deck lists since Skyclave and Aspirant were printed. And I had a couple of days off. So I had, like, Wednesday, Thursday, and I was only playing in the Sunday event. So I had a lot of time to prepare. So I spent, like, hours working on a sideboard guide. Um, I was, like, spreadsheeting my wins and losses. I was taking time to talk with other D&T pilots, you know, browse the forums and Discord and things of that nature for ideas. And I'm very, very happy with how I, like, my deck list going into the weekend, my sideboard plans and things of that nature. And I decided to do video content while I was prepping. So I released a series of, like, Eternal Weekend diary entries on my YouTube that just kind of documents my thought process every few hours. And uh, really, really happy with my preparation going up to the event. All right, next section. How did we do? So we that was our prep. Uh, how did it pay off? Um, guess I'll start. So the... Uh, the shark, le- the shark run went two and three. Uh, that that was the deck I felt most prepared for. It felt like I was going to play the best, and it was a two-three drop. Uh, I made it to three and three before I dropped with Maverick. Uh, that one I made a bunch of like dopey mistakes that if I had put in my work, I would have known how to do. Um, and then Sunday was my my good run. Uh, I switched to Snowco overnight, 
I started out 6-0, and then I tailspinned into 7-3. I live-blogged the whole thing. Uh, You can check out my Twitter. Uh, I posted the link to the Google Doc where I was filling that in, and I'm going to do the same thing this coming weekend. Uh, If you want to see, like, in-depth game analysis. Uh, Like I said above, I was super impressed with Snowco. Like, I played a couple leagues with the deck before, and it was just like, okay, yeah, this is Blue Soup. This is, like, Grixis Control, circa 2018. I never really liked that deck. It has no closing power, etc., etc. But Snowco, maybe it's just the current list of Snowco. This deck is good, and I really like it. Like, this is what I would do at a Grand Prix, if there was a Grand Prix tomorrow. And because I was taking such meticulous notes in the the blog, uh, I was able to trace exactly what I did wrong. Um, I went 7-3, and three, like I said. And all three of my losses can be traced to a specific mistake. And none of the mistakes were huge. It was just like uh, some little thing that left a little window open and it got punished every time. And uh, I I think it's worth framing a discussion around. Uh, I want to talk about like strategy versus tactics. Um, Strategy is your, your macro plan. Like, what do I have to do to win this matchup? What does the last turn of this game look like if I'm going to win it? And your tactics are your your micro uh, decisions. That's like the individual actions you take to reach your strategy. So the strategy of Snoko in every single matchup is stay alive and then win. Like, just don't die and you'll eventually win. And... I did a pretty good job of doing that for six rounds. And then in round seven, I blew it against Urza Echo. Uh, there was a turn that I uh, I brainstormed on my third turn. And I put two lands on top. I had Uro and Assassin's Trophy in my hand. And I planned that I could next turn cast the Uro, make two land drops, pass the turn with Assassin's Trophy up. And then the turn after that, escape Uro, and I'm miles ahead. My opponent resolved Urza that turn, and they passed to me, and I had my Uro line available. And that's a super tight tactical play. Like, that's a great setup. I I think that that's like some big brain shit. I was like proud of finding the line, but I didn't adjust to keep my strategy in mind. Uh, The strategy being stay alive. Um... The Uro into Trophy line answers the Urza, but it leaves me dead to a top deck if they uh, kill me somehow, and they are a combo deck. So what I could have done was uh, cast Brainstorm and try to find a counterspell. I could have cast Snapcaster Mage and Swords to Plowshares on Urza and hold up the Brainstorm in case I need to frantically dig to answer something. Um, Or I could have just like evoked the Uro, and then held a Brainstorm. Like, there were a lot of things I could have done that didn't leave me dead to a top deck. But I went with the Uro line, I trophied the Urza, I passed the turn tapped out with Snapcaster and Brainstorm in hand, and the land they got off the trophy, the City of Traitors from their hand, and the Lines of Diamond in play was exactly 10 mana for them to jam Karn and, like, lattice me. So I just lost track of the, the big picture. That's pretty unfortunate, but yeah, I get what you're saying that like, it's so easy to take the enticing play sometimes like that. The line you took was the value play, but it's not really, that's not a value match for, for to say, 
I'm, I'm losing my words right now, but you know what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, it, it's ex- it, you're saying exactly the right thing. Like that exact same line of like uh, evoking the Uro. It's not really evoke. It just feels that way. I always think of it that way. Like evoking the Uro, jumping ahead on mana, replacing the card. I can still make that exact same line next turn if I'm still alive. And I could just brainstorm to make sure I don't die this turn. Uh, and I just gave them a small window. And, and like, the reality is that that's really small. In some large percentage of times, they their hand isn't... They had three cards in their hand. Like, they drew for turn and had three cards. And two of them were Karn City of Traders. So, like, there's there's a reasonable chance that goes unpunished. And then I just win next turn. But... I left that window open. That's on me. Like I can say like my opponent got lucky, but I gave them the chance to get lucky. So that, and it's because I I lost sight of my strategy. Question Uh, from the sounds of it. I don't know your exact board state looks like, but was Snapcaster swords hold open trophy an available line as well? Or did you only have the one available for brains? No. So uh, I had three, three mana in play or three lands. And then I drew the land that I had put back. The brainstorm I cast on three mana put back two lands. So I drew land number four with land number five on top that the Uro could get. And then that's the two for trophy. So I had four mana to work with. I got you. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and, and I think any line that I, any other available line is better than the one I took because of the, uh, my strategic plan. Though that was the, the tightest tactical line. I thought it was fucking sweet, but. Uh, it, it did not pay off. Uh, my second one was the opposite. Uh, I used good tactics and lost sight of strategy. And this was to Hogak. Uh, we split the first two games. In game three, I was on the play. And my hand was uh, Ponder, Brainstorm, Force of Will, and some lands. And... I led on the ponder because, you know, you ponder first. That's what blue decks do. Like, that's just like good fundamental tactics. And I did not stop to consider their strategy. And their strategy is shred you with discard and then kill you. So I pondered. I set up like a reasonable looking ponder that like it wasn't perfect, but it wasn't a shuffle. And I figured the brainstorm would mop it up. And then they thought seize the brainstorm. And I just, I couldn't do anything. Um, and then on the last turn where they they went off, they shit their graveyard into play. I drew Nihil Spellbomb that turn after their graveyard was already in play. Where if I had just thought for a second, how do I lose this? They discard Brainstorm. And I would just pass with Blue Up, respond to the Thoughtseize with Brainstorm, hide the Ponder, and then keep my Velocity going. I would have found that Nihil Spellbomb three turns earlier than I did, and I would have easily won that game. So just uh, defaulted to the good tactics, losing sight of strategy. And my third loss, I just uh, threw both strategy and tactics to the wind against Doomsday. Uh, we had a crazy counter war that resulted in both of us being hellbent. My top card was Snapcaster Mage. I knew that. I had put it there from a, an earlier cantrip. And I drew for turn the Snapcaster. My graveyard had Ponder, Brainstorm, and Veil of Summer in it. And I just passed the turn. Like, I, I don't know what I was thinking. The only thing that I care about in that spot is Doomsday. And none of the cards in my graveyard counter Doomsday. So 
what I should have done is just main phase snap ponder. Because if the ponder is bad, you can just shuffle it and you keep your velocity going. What I did was end step snap brainstorm and basically brainstorm lock myself. I found swords to plowshares and two non-white lands and just had to work through that shit. Yeah, it was bad. And then he ended up winning. Uh, he cast Doomsday the turn before it would have been lethal for him to cast. Like accounting uh, for chopping your life total in half, starting from Hellbent, uh, plus my clock. Uh, he, he was, uh, Max Gilmore. I do know my opponent. Uh, I am saying he, him on purpose. I do know who this person is. So, uh, Bryant just corrected me in the chat. I was going to ask the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, I've, I've addressed this in my videos before too. Like how, when I know my opponent, I still am like, if still feels wrong to say he, he was a he in this case. It is a person I know. Uh, but yeah, I, I just like played bad like i i just tried to find some value line like what even is the value line like he draws exactly duress and i get to veil of sumrit like haha sucker like he wouldn't even cast it if he drew it that turn we're both going from hellbent <laughs> like he would wait until he draws doomsday and check with a duress so i just played play that so bad like snap ponder is definitely the line look for some pressure close out the game when we're both hellbent i'm not trying to make excuses for you brian but i'll say this Round 27 of the event. You don't play as well as you do round one or two, right? <laughs> well, uh, sure. Uh, the That is true, though. The, the point I'm trying to make is that I could have, with the tools given to me, 10-0'd the Swiss in this event, and I didn't instead. And it would be so easy to say, like, Oh, that was so lucky the Hogak player had the Thoughtseize. It was so lucky they drew, that Karn player drew Karn. So lucky that uh, Max Doomstayed the turn before I could kill him. Like, I gave all three of those people the window to do that. And that is my point here. It's a very constructive way to look at it. Also, this is, goes back to something that I hate about uh, Magic Twitter. It's, well, my opponent top decked, they got lucky, I drew poorly, I really should be 10-0, I 10-0'd this event. No, you did not. Um, I saw somebody, I'm not going to call out who the, who the individual was, but they said, I went 6-2 in Eternal Weekend, and then somebody said, hey, this these were 10-round events, and they go, oh, the other two rounds were bullshit. No, you went 6-4, <laughs> you did not go 6-2. If you lost four rounds, you lost four rounds. And it goes back to how I track data. You track things as they happen. Uh, if you lose four rounds, you lose four rounds, suck it up, accept what happens, try to grow from it like Brian is, and then like grow as a person, learn something instead of just always chalking things up to bad beats or like my opponent is lucky. Yeah, there's there's significantly less luck in magic than uh, average players think there is. Uh, bad players think it's all luck. Average players think there's a lot of luck and there just isn't. Uh, it, it's not chess. Don't get me wrong. Like the the worst player wins in Magic a lot uh, compared to other games. There is variance. There is a little bit of luck, but it's way less than anyone thinks it is, especially in formats with Brainstorm. Yeah, um, I guess I'll use that as a transition point to talk about my Eternal Weekend experience um, because I also want to talk about some things that I did wrong that weren't necessarily gameplay things. So going into the tournament, I thought DNT was going to be one of the best decks in the winner's metagame. I was very happy with how the deck was performing versus Delver, and also happy against 
uh, happy with how it was performing versus Snow, which I didn't expect, but I was crushing Snow for some reason. Um, I think a lot of the Snow pilots weren't playing enough wind conditions, to be honest, and Felidar Retreat was one of the things that solved that. Um, anyway, the important part here was that I was really worried about making it out of the first couple of rounds, because there are some common-ish matchups that are actually, like, very abysmal for death and taxes. Uh, the Doomsday and Omni, Omni matchups are really hard. Uh, I started off the event pretty well at 3-1, and then kind of fell off and ended up 3-3 before dropping. I was happy with my play for the most part, with the exception of one stupid misclick. Um, I just kind of got caught up in a very convoluted chain of thought that involved blockers and life total management, and I went, all right, I'm going to block with Thalia, she has first strike damage, I'm going to do first strike damage, and then my flicker whisk is going to block this other thing and it'll be fine, and I hit okay, and then I went like, oh, I literally died to that. I was very dead, the Hogak player had like 20 power in play, but I could have lived one more turn. I don't think I had outs, but I still did something stupid and I need to own up to that. That was like game one, round one, and I was like, oh god. That's how this weekend is starting, huh? Um, but I tightened up from there and played really well. Um, that said, I think a lot of my mistakes were still in preparation phases, because I encountered two things that I wasn't really ready for over the course of the weekend. The first was when I played against Red Prison. Um, I played that deck a lot, and I just kind of assumed that I knew what the deck looked like. Uh, turns out I didn't because the deck changed a ton after Shatter Skull Smashing was printed. Uh, it's one of the modal double-faced cards that has an X damage spell on the other side. And turns out the deck went from being a largely control deck to an aggro deck, and I was not ready for that. Red Prison was not on my sideboard plan, and I had like 15 or 20 decks on my sideboard plan, but that was just one of the matchups that I wasn't thinking about. And I learned about their the changes to the deck in the middle of game two. Um, I absolutely could have prepared better for that matchup, and I just didn't. I didn't get paired against it. I wasn't up to date on the most current versions of the deck list, and I got a little bit punished for it. So preparing for that matchup, do you mean like if you had known the card was in, you could have boarded in a better way? Or do you mean like deck building decisions? Uh, si Sideboarding decisions, mostly. Okay. So... In the past year, I've largely been boarding Swords to Plowshares out versus Red Prison because they're really on, like, the Karn, Chandra plan, or they were, and they were really more of a hard control deck with things like Ensnaring Bridge. And this deck was, like, Anji's Ravager levels of aggro, where it's playing additional threats, and there were, I think, four copies of uh, Pia and Kirin in there as well. So, like, I should have left in all of my removal spells, and I learned that a little bit too late. The When I won the challenge with Rugdolver, Magic Online user, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but Basuta, B-A-S-U-T-A, they've been championing that list. They top for that event, and then people have been copying that Mono Red Prison list the last two or three weeks since then. So I was aware that it had become a little bit more aggro. Uh, I don't think it still has chandra in it i could be wrong i certainly didn't see them but it's they're in still the sideboard now okay they did have main deck cards against me at least when i faced them yeah so i i got aggroed out and and i died and i i could have had more removal spells in and i didn't 
So would my sideboarding decisions have made the difference in the match? Eh, maybe not, but maybe they would have. So, like, I definitely attribute my loss there to myself. Um, then I lost to a lone player who had really good tech for the weekend that I was not ready for. Field of the Dead. Like, my lone player fetched that up, and I went, oh no, how do I beat that? And I didn't draw a wasteland, and I, I did I did not beat that. That was not something that I was mentally prepared for. And I think we, we fought an exceptionally long game one that involved me being, like, just short of being able to kill them, uh, just turn after turn, because Field of the Dead generated too many blockers. That was not something that was on my radar. That was not something that I was playing around. So again, if I was better informed, I maybe could have saved a wasteland that I used earlier or something like that. I am glad we were talking about Field of the Dead. When I played Snow in a challenge, I lost in the top four. I got my lands opponent down to one life. I had a number of creatures in play, and then Field of the Dead happened. And the second it happened, I said, I lost this game. I will never be able to force through enough damage for the rest of this game for me to win. And I ended up conceding like two turns later after wasting five minutes on clock. Uh, it just like <laughs> didn't matter. And I felt so embarrassed. And then the next week followed our retreat started to pop up. And I was like, if I had played this card the previous weekend, I could have stood a chance and talking to Jarvis about it. Jarvis is like, yeah, this card smashes field of the dead. You turn all of your zombies into three threes with vigilance. Their two twos never get through. They have to block poorly. Followed our retreat is insane. If I was playing Snow, I'd be playing one main, one board. Uh, and part of the reason I like it is that everyone's trying to surgical your Uros out of Snow, and then you're stuck trying to win with, like, two Oko and then Quaddles. Not anymore. You have an army of cats. Yeah, my, I had an insane Snow Comir. It was probably my favorite match I played this weekend uh, against uh, D Batterman on, uh, yeah, on Moto and Twitter. And we talked about the match a lot afterwards. And... Both of the sideboard games were determined by Felidar Retreat. Just when the dust cleared, one of us drew that card and the other didn't in both games. And it's all you need. It, that card is really exciting. Then I learned he had one in the main as well. I feel like I got away with something by beating him. Then my last loss was to Jund. And this one, this one I'll blame on the matchup. That is an abysmal matchup for Death and Taxes. The, uh, the deck with little creatures and a bunch of artifacts does not do well against the Culligan's Command, Plague Engineer, Lily Last Hope, Toxic Deluge deck. It was a massacre. It was, it was bad. Wow, massacre happened to the white deck, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'd fancy that. Uh, overall, like had, had a blast playing the weekend. Uh, I do have one kind of closing thought. Luminarch Aspirant has continued to overperform for me. I killed a Grizzlebrand in combat with a two-mana white creature in round two of that event. So, like, I will continue to sing that card's praises. Uh, but an interesting and frustrating thing is happening in the community right now, where the community keeps copying the winning deck lists, and the winning deck list came from one person that shared that deck list, and then that process is repeating. So people are refusing to playtest a card that doesn't have results but everyone is copying the same deck list. And so I'm stuck in this like negative feedback loop where no one will test the card that I'm like very, very positive is good because it's not putting up results because no one is playtesting with it. 
Hey, Phil, have I ever told you about the Epic Storm? Yeah, you've uh, you've mentioned that a couple of times. <laughs> I am in the position you were in. Yeah, I totally get being in that spot. Like, there was definitely time periods where I was convinced that the Epic Storm was better than Ad Nauseam Tendrils in certain metagames. And I top a Star City during the Omni era uh, through Dig Through Time. And that version of TES just repeatedly crushed Omni. But it didn't matter. I would hear all of my ant friends complaining about how they couldn't win the matchup, but none of them were willing to switch. So I, I really do understand, like, hey, this card is good. It's putting up results and just, like, people don't want to hear it. They don't think that this card is good or they dismiss it. I'm a believer. I saw all of the screenshots you were posting. Uh, and I've also, like, played against it as Rug. And turning your bad threats into good ones is certainly very scary. I had another screenshot versus Hogak where I think the card had provided, like, six plus one plus one counters and let, like, a Stoneforge Mystic and a Recruiter attack in that otherwise couldn't have gotten through, like, a Hadron Crab and O2. Uh, so, like, the card was doing serious work for me in games. Also, for additional daggers, the Aspirant lists aren't 15 cards different from the traditional D&T lists, so... Like, I've 5-0'd, and one of my other testing partners has 5-0'd, but they've never gotten published. So everyone's like, it hasn't even 5-0'd! Ah! <laughs> yes, it None has! None of that stuff matters. None of that I matters. Oh, I was one of the pioneers that cut counterbalance for Monastery Mentor in Miracles after Top got banned, so I feel both of you. Like, that card is just so much better than what people did for way too long. Alright. I guess I'll take it away. So I'm going to keep mine uh, pretty short because, honestly, no one wants to hear me talk about the Epic Storm forever. Uh, I got punished in my first event. I went one three drop. And in my round two, I like played a very masterful round one, I felt like. I, like. I really played well. I was feeling good about myself. I defeated Snow and like two pretty easy breezy games. I got him on a good trick. Round two, I'm, I get paired against Painter. I'm like feeling like I'm rocky. I'm punching, you know, climbing steps, all that good stuff. And turn one game when I fetched the wrong land, just like I'm feeling too good about myself. And that causes me to try to uh, correct it by fetching a different land. And before I knew it, I had two lands that I didn't want in play. I had trot bad lands instead of underground sea taiga. Oh no. And I, I was like, what am I doing? And because of that on the next turn, I couldn't, uh, there was like a sequence I wanted to do that I couldn't because I had the opposite lands in play. And I was like, Ugh. and it sent me a turn behind. And with that one turn, I lost game one and I won game two. And then in game three, I kept like a pretty solid hand and variance happens in magic. I'm not trying to say it's luck, but I cast four uh, cantrips and I was in a spot where I had defense grid in play with double veil backup, cast four cantrips and just never found burning wish or wish claw talisman. And I play a combo deck. I understand that there's a fail rate. It just felt really bad that the fail rate happened. And then I played two rounds against uh, Rugdelver, where my list is pretty much made to beat Rugdelver. I cut all the flex spots from the board. I'm playing four Carpet of Flowers. Both of my Rugdelver opponents had their Haymaker on turn two in the post-board game, so they had turn two Null Rod. And sometimes your deck just gets shat on. Like, if your opponents are ready for you, you lose. Uh, that's part of playing combo sometimes. And if, especially if they have a haymaker like Norod and you don't like, I only play two answers. Like I have two abrupt decay. By the time I was able to get one, I was just too far buried. And that's a part of magic as well. Then I decided to uh, take a nap, almost missed the 3am. 
I set my alarms for 245, 250, and 255. And I was like half asleep and I was like, oh, I should check the time. Saw there was three rushed on my computer, freaking out. So I go to sign up. If it was at three, I would have been 35 seconds late. Fortunately for me, it's 305. So I was able to get in. I played some pretty good magic. I pounded monsters for the first time in like 10 years, I feel like. I think the last time I had one, I was like 23 or 24. I'm 31 now. So seven or eight, I guess. And they worked. I was after that first one kicked in, I felt great for the next like five or six hours and then had another. Unfortunately, I kind of spun off towards the end. If you watch the videos, they're up on YouTube. I had some misfortune uh, in a couple of the matchups. My opponent did their things. I didn't get to. Uh, had an echo fail. Like I said, playing combo has fail rates. Sometimes some of the things are out of your control. Casting an echo with five mana floating and drawing all rituals. There's not a whole lot you can do there, but sometimes you have to take one on the chin and move on. And then Sunday, I don't know. I played really well. The deck just didn't win. Sometimes it's not your weekend. But I think that this upcoming weekend is going to be my weekend, or at least so I hope. Uh, I'm pretty confident in Vintage and in my choice, and I'm not going to mess around with other deck lists. And I think that's a big mistake I made this past week, is I was testing other decks when I should have just been testing the thing I'm best with. Yeah, I mean, I only played in one of the Eternal Weekend events because I, I know myself, and I know that I don't play well when I'm sleepy. So I, I looked at the start time of the, the Friday event and went, you know, if I were to top eight that, I would not be okay in the top eight. And given that top eighting is what you're trying to do, I said, nope, I'm, I'm just going to focus on the Sunday event. You two are mad lads, but I do respect it. Oh, oddly enough, I mean, I did pretty poorly over the, uh, if you add up all my wins and losses, I went 10 and 10. I went 500, 50%. And even Steven, exactly. I never saw a single fucking mind break trap. So I can't even blame it on losing to this card. I hate, like I just either didn't play well, a uh, variant style. Like it, it was, like sometimes you just lose and it happens, but like I didn't even lose to the card that I hate the most, which is kind of funny. And I'm embarrassed that I only played two leagues with the deck that I ended up playing. So speaking of mind break trap, the original art for it went up in the MTG art market, I saw. Facebook group. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, Part of me was like, oh, that would be so funny to, like, get and, like, sent Brian pictures of it. And, like, it was, like, opening bid, 4000 And, like, the second comment was, like, I've received a private bid for $14,500. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> well, the art for tendrils went up for twenty grand, And I was like, there's no way that sells for twenty grand." It was gone, like, the next day. Yeah, I I saw the the person who bought it posted pictures. Like, I I wish I was at a place in life that I could like snap off twenty k on something that I just really love. But I don't know if there's anything I love enough to put twenty k into right now. Like, yeah. <laughs> sorry, pets. Sorry, family. I just don't have it. I still have student loans. Like, I, I'm not buying paintings. Yeah, right. I only hang the ones that I win on my walls. All right. So that's probably a decent point to transition into actually talking about vintage deck options. Um, for those of you who are going to play 
Eternal Weekend, the vintage version, this coming weekend. Good news. Two people on this cast know what they're talking about when it comes to vintage, and one person is ready to ask questions. Yeah, I have a bunch of them ready for you, too. And if you're not playing vintage this weekend, you could probably shut us off, but you might not want to. Who knows? Anyone who's made it this far, stick it out. (laughs) The intro was a a bummer this week, but you're still here an hour in. So thank you and enjoy our vintage conversation. All right. So I've played against this bug mid-range deck uh, a couple of times in the 1.5 vintage leagues that I have played in the last 24 hours. Um, And it feels like this really sort of like fair, almost legacy style deck to me. That's a good way of describing it, Phil. It's very legacy-esque. You're playing with a bunch of former legacy all-stars or soon-to-be former legacy all-stars. And it doesn't do anything inherently powerful. It's just it has the best cards in it and they're all very consistent. Yeah, it's just these like pile of things that feel like they would be good against shops. Like there's Oko, there's Assassin's Trophy, there's Main Deck Collector, Oof. And beyond that, the deck just has a lot of flexible tools and it gets to play a bunch of powerful restricted blue cards too so like the big draw for a lot of people is oh my god i get to play death or shaman again and i can turn i can curve it into oko on turn two and that really gets a lot of people excited the problem with it is like this deck in vintage you really want to be doing powerful things and this deck wins with tarmogoyf nothing wrong with you know the 2009 all-star tarmogoyf like it it had its time in the sun, but in my opinion, it's a little embarrassing to be casting Grizzly Bear and Vintage, especially when like more powerful things exist. And if you want to be playing a fair blue deck, there's other out, others out there that just do more powerful things, in my opinion. Like this is one of the most played decks by far. Like if you go to Goldfish this weekend, it's at the top because like just the sheer volume of people that play it. Yeah, it's a popular deck. Uh, Like you guys said, it's a throwback to a lot of things people like about Legacy. It's also the reigning uh, vintage champ. Uh, Joe Brennan won last year with this deck. So uh, this is the... If you're just going to last year's Eternal Weekend to see what was good, you're going to find this deck. Yeah. So I, I, I played against this deck like four times in two leagues. And I beat an Oko today that had 15 loyalty, literal 15 loyalty. It had been in play, but that was kind of the only thing that the bug opponent had that was actually pressuring me. And it felt really cool to kill an Oko that had been sitting on the board for that long. But it also made me think, like, why would you want to play that deck if it's just that fair? Like, I wanted to be doing something more degenerate than that. Yeah, so so Bryant touched on it a little bit already, and it's consistency. Uh, like, Paradoxical Outcome, I think, is the most powerful thing you can do in Vintage right now, and we'll talk about that next, don't worry. But there are plenty of times where you, like, keep a hand that can PO for three on turn one with force backup, and then you draw, like, a land, a mox, and a sensei's top off your PO for three, and now you just have, like, ten cards in hand, six of them make mana, and all you can do is spin your top. And that's and you just lose three turns later to some shit. Uh, and uh, that will never happen with Bug. Uh, you will always present a clock. You will always be at least minorly disruptive, sometimes majorly disruptive if you like your oof lines up with an artifact deck or whatever. Uh, if your wastelands are able to pick off uh, 
a bazaar or a workshop, like you can just pull ahead easily. So you will always be rock solid. And there's a lot to like about being solid in a format this wild. So one thing that I did mention was that there are other fairer blue decks out there that sometimes do a little bit more degenerate things. And a part of that is there's a lot of ways now that you can recuperate and recast Ancestral Recall. Bug doesn't play those. You get one Ancestral Recall and then you get Sylvan Library. Or some of the other more fair blue decks have their Mystic Sanctuary and Days and Gush and Ways and Dreadhorde Arcanist where they're casting Ancestral Recall two and a half, three times a game. Where if you get paired against one of those as Bug, you feel a little bit at a disadvantage. If like you're really good at being consistent and beating a lot of the more unfair stuff sometimes, but if you face off against Jeskai, for example, I think you're a little bit of a dog. Outside of your like your trophies hitting a timely planeswalker, I just think that you're gonna get outfared. Yeah, the the other decks, they they just uh, like Jeskai ha- like Bug has Assassin's Trophy. Jeskai has Lightning Bolt and Swords to Plowshares, plus more Ancestral Recalls. Like uh you're not gonna cheese a win with a timely wasteland off of a, a Xerox mirror uh, with with bug. Exactly. Do either of you have anything to say before we move on to my favorite vintage deck? No, let's do it. I think Brian should actually be the one to talk about it. I mean, he has an internal weekend toppy with it. I'm just some scrub that plays with it online. Ex- excuse me, what did you just say to me? I have an eternal weekend top eight with Paradox. Do you have multiple? I don't know what you do in your free time. <laughs> I have three with a win. <laughs> They're all with PO? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, I have top eighted the last three consecutive vintage champs, and I won one of them, all with Paradoxical Outcome. Uh, so, uh, ignoring the disrespect from my co-host here. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh Paradoxical Outcome and I, we get along. I think this deck is bananas. Um, If you're unfamiliar with the engine, Paradoxical Outcome is a four mana instant. You can return any number of target non-land permanent, non-land non-token permanents you control to your hand and draw that many cards. Vintage is full of zero mana artifacts that tap for mana. So you just like play four Moxin, you Paradoxical Outcome for four, you're up four cards and you just play your Moxin and back out. It costs you zero mana and you drew four cards. And then if you find a fifth mox, the next PO draws five and you're up one mana. And then you just like chugga chugga through your deck. Usually kill with Monastery Mentor. Uh, some decks can play like Tendrils or Grape Shot or whatever, but those are mostly obsolete. Um, the deck can play a little tighter if you just like tinker for Bolas' Citadel and storm out that way. Uh, either way, the end game is usually draw your deck, cast Monastery Mentor, cast Time Walk and kill your opponent on the Time Walk turn. And the the deck is uh it 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 is I think the best combo deck. Um it is certainly the combo deck with the most uh interplay to it. Like you can you can turn one goldfish with this deck, or you can settle in, sculpt your hand with Sensei's top and brainstorm and ponder, and then like go off on turn seven with triple fluster storm red blast backup. And you can play either sort of game. Um your uh the, the list is customizable. You can basically play uh, any color shell. Uh, you need blue, obviously. But uh, my my top eights, my win was with Esper. My second top eight was with Rug. And then I went back to Esper uh, for the, the most recent one. And uh, Jeskai is 
currently, I think, the best build, which was not a version I'd played previously. So uh, you can tune what you want your PO deck to look like outside of the PO package uh, to to be good and bad against whatever you want it to be. How dare you say Jeskai is the best one? It's four color, Brian. Whatever, dude. Oh, yeah, there, there is Demonic Tutor in the Jeskai deck. It's mostly Jeskai <laughs> with Demonic Tutor and, Vamp. and, and Vampiric yeah. Tutor. Okay, yeah. Brian is now correct. Uh, so one of the appealing things about PO, like Brian said, is you get to choose the game plan that you want. I often do it based on what my hand looks like. And PO is definitely a deck that rewards fundamental solid mulliganing decisions. And if you open up a hand that's six can or six artifacts in a land, you need to ship that. I've seen some people think about it. They're like, well, if I draw a paradoxical outcome, no, you get punished for that in vintage In legacy. You're able to keep some dirtily hands. Sometimes you don't get to do that in vintage. So with PO, you want to be able to mulligan and make good mulligan decisions, but it's also like one of the better combo decks. And the fact that you get to play control a lot of the time too. And some matchups, you are the control deck. And so matchups, you're strictly combo. And it's up to you to decide how you want to play that role based on the matchup. The deck is very flexible. Sometimes I'm a tempo deck. Like sometimes I'm boarding in Sprite Dragons and just, you know, crashing in. So you have a lot of flexibility in how you decide to play. Tempo in Vintage is like really insane because I'm doing some plays that I like never would have even considered in other formats to buy or adjust tempo. So I'm in the middle of a league with uh, the, what was it called, Hogak Vine right now. And I will frequently do something like Force of Vigor to Moxen or something like that just to buy myself another turn and keep my opponent off a larger threat. And like that's the sort of tempo play that is happening in this format relatively frequently. Like, your mulligan decisions matter so much, and the things that you do for fight, fighting over tempo are sometimes really strange. Um, and it leaves the format with a really interesting feel. Yeah, a lot of legacy players that I know, I think that their mulligan decisions are... I'm not trying to badmouth our fellow format uh, players, but they keep hands because Brainstorm exists. Brainstorm is a one of vintage. You can't just keep a hand and expect to draw Brainstorm at some point. So it's a format where you do get rewarded for being disciplined. So just keep that in the back of your head. Um, and like one of the things about PO is that like you are favored against the field. Like you are the rug delver in that aspect where you don't really have that many bad matchups. Like bad matchups exist, but for the most part, you're positive against the field. So if you're capable of playing strong magic, you just elevate typically. Yeah, it's basically like Rug and Jeskai PO. Or no, Rug and Jeskai Xerox are the are the matchups that you really don't want to play against. And they're they're beatable. It's just like uh, if you come up against the person with like a steady clock and two red blast, two fluster storm in their main deck, uh that's a bad time. But it, in general like yeah, everything's beatable and you're positive against most things. So sometimes uh you're bad against the bizarre decks. Like Dredge can be pretty difficult for PO, and so can Hollow Vine. Uh, and uh, there's a difference, and we'll get to that between Hogak Vine and Hollow Vine. I know they sound similar; they're actually not. And the combo decks that can be more controlling can be a little bit tough. So there's a deck called Jeskai or Four Color Breach or Jeskai Breach, the Breach decks. They play just like Xerox, and sometimes you don't even know that they're not Xerox until they kill you. Like they've cast it 
Merchant Scroll for Ancestral. They've gotten Mystic Sanctuary. They've gushed. And all of a sudden, they go Black Lotus, Breach, Brain Freeze, Kill You. And you're like, oh, I had no idea that was your win con because it's so compact. So sometimes you do get out controlled without even realizing that's the battle that you were fighting the entire time. And uh, yeah, and one of the biggest reasons, in my opinion, and I know Brian feels this way, is with PO, Paradoxical Outcome, you get to have an adaptive strategy. So if your opponents are boarding in Force of Vigor and Collector Roofs and all this other stuff, you zig when they're zagging. So you bo- you're boarding in Spur Dragon and Blightsteel Quest to, to tinker for. So when they're holding their Assassin's Trophies and Force of Vigors, you're like, okay, well, here's a 12-12 Infector. So I watched some of Bryant's uh, PO videos last night. I'll, I'll admit it. I was I was pretty stoked on Vintage after trying it out yesterday. And I was actually really impressed by the sideboard options. So what? why don't you explain what's so cool about your, your sideboard and like what you have to offer that allows you to dodge some of the traditional hate that people might be playing for you? Well, like I mentioned, there is Sprite Dragon and Bite Steel Colossus. And then from there, a lot of people get down on decks like Paradoxical Outcome because Vintage is a format where your opponents play four Pyroblast a lot of the time. And one of the ways that you beat that is by saying, hey, I have so many good Pyroblast targets that you can't, in theory, counter everything. You're going to have to pick something into Pyroblast and I'm going to kill you with the other. And on top of that, the way that I've built my PO list is I've started to play more Flusters. I'm at three right now. I've played four in the past, but I'm at three right now. Fluster is naturally good at beating Pyroblast. So I'm actually playing a 3-3 split at the moment where a lot of people play 4-2. And I've played 4-3 before. And just having a plan for Pyroblast can be very good. When the format's a little bit more fair and less combo-oriented, like right now Doomsday is pretty popular, you can play Defense Grid. And that just makes Pyroblast look really embarrassing when they have to play spend four mana on a Pyroblast. So... A lot of the times with this deck, you're just looking for ways to play around Pyroblast. I was really impressed by the Sprite Dragons. Uh, uh, in a previous time where I was playing Vintage somewhat seriously, um, I saw a lot of Mana Gorger Hydras destroying people, and that just uh, brought joy to my heart in, of being of a similar ilk. That's more of a Brian Koval thing right there. I'll let him talk about Mana Gorger. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the, the the Sprite Dragon slot if you have green in your PO deck. Um, I, I don't think having green in your PO deck is very good right now, but uh, last year at Champs, uh, the uh, uh, Lightning Bolt was just like such a good card uh, that uh, it was when Narset was unrestricted. So like you basically needed answers to Narset in your main deck, and Lightning Bolt also lined it up really well against the shops and the Xerox decks, just picking off creatures. And you had one Mana Gorger in the main, and three more in the board. And against those Xerox decks that are not going to let you go off because they have four Pyroblast, four Flusterstorm, you just put Mana Gorger Hydra into play. If it becomes a 3-3, they can't kill it anymore because it's too big for Bolt. And you just ranch. Uh, I got a lot of people with Mana Gorger Hydra. (laughs) It's a good time. Uh, I, I wish that that was still the card I could play in PO. I know a lot of people think that like Veil is good in Legacy, it has to be good in Vintage, and I've I've I mean I was once in that camp too. The problem is like Veil of Summer isn't so good in Vintage, even though it is a blue dominated format that you get to carry along Mana Gorger Hydra too. 
in vintage you your cards often need counterplay like they need to be good on your turn and your opponent's turn and just protecting your own spell sometimes isn't enough when your opponent's trying to murder you it the dead the dead card problem is also very real because huge pillars of vintage against pillars certain pillars of vintage like a main deck fail for example is just going to do stone cold nothing like workshop trenosphere Nice green card. Yeah, we talked about this last uh, episode in our sideboarding when I brought up how uh, stark the sideboard mapping in Vintage has to be. Because Bryant just said, like, he's playing, like, three Flusterstorm, two Pyroblast, and then, like, you get paired against shops. It's like, nice cards, idiot. Like, you need to be able to board those out for playable cards. Uh, All of the Xerox decks uh, have... Or at least the the ones with red in them. They have Pyroblast in the main. They have Flusterstorm in the main. They have Spell Pierce, Mental Misstep. All of these cards are there. Uh, Force of Negation. And then like sometimes those cards don't have any text. And every card matters because some cards are insane in Vintage. Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about Golos stacks? Alright, sounds good. One note on sideboarding. If you intend on playing the Vintage Eternal Weekend and you're not a Vintage regular, holy shit, figure out your sideboard plans. Like, I am, I am coming in as a vintage novice player, just trying to pick up some decks and play games, and sideboarding is so unintuitive, and in the videos that I'm recording, the thing that I'm most frequently saying right now is, I have no idea how to sideboard. It's tough, because so many of your cards are dedicated for certain matchups, and when you don't face those matchups, you don't have that many cards, and the adjustments are very strange. Alright, so Golos Stacks, or Golos Shops, whatever you want to call it. Uh, essentially, this is the big mana deck of the format. It has prison elements with a lot of restricted cards like Chalice of the Void, Trinisphere, and Horn of Amethyst. But the lock pieces attack from a lot of different angles, which is really what gives it good counterplay against a lot of the format. Um, you even have some things like main deck Sorceress Spyglass that allow you to attack lands, uh, such as Bazaar of Baghdad. You have a really cool tutor package in the form of Golos, uh, which is the five-mana artifact creature that allows you to get a land into play when uh, it hits the battlefield. And when I first looked at this, I'm going to admit, I thought, how is that vintage playable? That seems slow. It's only okay in Legacy. But it turns out it is an absolute all-star in vintage because you have even more powerful lands. Like, you can get a workshop that always taps for three mana. There's the Talarian Academy, which sometimes legitimately makes, like, seven or eight mana. You have Strip Mine that you can fetch up Caracas to keep recurring it and turning it into an engine. And the thing that surprised me that was actually really good was Inventor's Fair. Because that means Golos can tutor for a land, which can tutor for an artifact, and that gives you access to pretty much anything that's in your deck. Uh, and I was just, like, super impressed by a card that I thought looked pretty bad at the surface. One of the biggest weaknesses of this deck in the past has been that it's very slow to close the game and sometimes would time out. Uh, I believe it was Magic Online user Montolio who adapted this list probably about two months ago. And it's already phased out a little bit in popularity, which is probably why you didn't see it. But it was playing the Dark Depths combo package as well. It was playing, I think, like two and one. So that way you could just like kill your opponent quickly once you lock them out. So there's a lot of ways that you can build your land tutor package as well. Yeah, um, there was one game 
where I got to tutor up a tabernacle and kill my opponent's hollow one that was threatening to just, like, absolutely destroy me. And they had a bazaar, and bazaar doesn't produce mana to save creatures. Um, and you can also play, like, a bajuka bog to new graveyard decks. Uh, it does a lot. Um, kind of my thoughts on the deck are that it has relatively weak boarding options for fair blue matchups. You have, like, a pile of graveyard hate and a pile of null rods in your sideboard. And then you have, like, two worm coil engines and, uh, a god pharaoh statue in the sideboard for fair matchups. And, like, I was sitting there going, like, how am I supposed to board? Am I bringing in this six mana, you know, do nothing card against a Xerox deck, against a bug deck? Uh, it was it was really weird to think about boarding for this deck. Um, other thoughts? It really has issues getting tempo back. If your opponent sticks an early threat, like something Tarmogoyf-sized, uh, you don't really play removal spells. A lot of your game plan involves sequencing rock pieces well and then blowing up an ungodly number of lands and keeping your opponent from doing anything. And if your opponent gets ahead on board, um, it becomes a real puzzle of figuring out how can you stabilize your life total. Uh, there's nothing like Ensnaring Bridge so that you can hide behind and just, like, journal around forever. Yeah, Phil said something really important there, uh, which is the sequencing of lock pieces, uh, which is the key to basically every shop stack. Uh, if you're going to play Mishra's Workshop of any flavor, you got to figure out how to hide what you're doing as best possible while doing the most things. Uh, so what I mean by that jumble of words is like, if, you're, if your hand has like, this is obviously a great hand, but like if you have like Mishra's Workshop, Black Lotus, Lodestone Golem, Thorn of Amethyst, you don't jam Lodestone Golem first. Like you don't even put the, uh, the shop into play right away. Like you go like Black Lotus, sack it, play Thorn of Amethyst with one floating, now your opponent has to think, like, do I force this? If I don't force it, then I can't force anything, because force will cost one, and it's turn one. And then, either way, whether it resolves or not, you go, shop Lodestone Golem. Like, and, and then, like, at, at first, it, like, you always want to hide the best thing you can do uh, behind a sphere, or as the second play, or, uh, like, lead on lead on something that disrupts them but not you and then puke out the rest when it's done uh that that's the key to playing shops you would have no idea how many times my opponent has done that but they lead on null rod i'm like they, they played mana crypt and tapped it am i really supposed to force this null rod i'm like my deck doesn't beat <laughs> null rod i guess i'll force this and they're just like okay mistress workshop second null rod and i'm like why am i here <laughs> yeah it's like yeah, it's exactly that. It's always like Mox, Mox, Null Rod. You're like, God damn it, Force. And then it's like Shop Trinisphere. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's how it works. And the great thing about Shops, like in the in all of these cases, the bait is also must counter. <laughs> like it's not even really bait. Yeah, um, the deck is doing pretty powerful things very quickly. Um, I think the deck is noticeably worse on the draw than play like oh, obviously yeah. that's, that's a prison deck a for you in vintage but like with this deck it's very noticeable um but like i i for one my first league making a lot of mistakes and not knowing how to sideboard so like there's definitely something there if you have legacy prison experience it transfers over relatively well 
But I also don't feel like it's the most broken thing the format is doing by any stretch of the imagination. So for a little bit, I was playing No Main Deck Hercules Recall. And I find myself losing to shops a lot more. But I was like, well, I'm post-board, I have the same number of cards. But like you said, I'm the draw that decks a lot worse. And I was losing more game ones. So when I was winning more game ones, I was losing the game two. And then on the play game three, I was like, okay, fine, jam a tinker. And that wins a lot more games when you're not on the draw in game three. Yeah, uh, every for as long as I've been playing vintage, I think I got into the format like 2008, 2009. Losing the die roll to shops is always just like the butthole clencher. <laughs> it's like, like every single matchup, the percentage swings by like 10 to like 30% based on uh, the die roll. And it, it's like, it's pretty frustrating, but also like uh, pretty cool, I guess. Begrudgingly, I will admit it's cool that this thing exists in the format, but I hate it. <laughs> uh, and it's just like a pile of restricted cards with a busted mana engine to poop them into play. And the cost of that is you don't get any instance. So about two years ago when I wasn't playing vintage and I was just looking on from the outside, a lot of people were complaining about how they wanted Mishra's workshop restricted. They wanted bizarre restricted. And then all of the 2020 and, or I'm sorry, 2019 and 2020 cards happened. And a lot of the fair decks and a lot of the blue decks caught up in power level to the shops and bizarre decks and honestly i think it's fine now like sometimes you'll still hear people saying that they want workshop restricted i don't think that needs to be the case anymore and that's probably a positive for vintage like if all the 2020 2019 stuff has any positive effect it's definitely in vintage in my opinion yeah so uh the year that I won Vintage Champs was the year that P.O. was born. Like, I think that was the first Champs where P.O. was legal. And up to that point, everyone was like, restrict shops, restrict shops. I think shops was like six of the top eight the year before. And uh, it had crushed the year before that, too. And like, the the year P.O., it, it was like, there was finally a blue combo deck that could hang with shops. Like, it, it, it like tip the scales like the if you look at the vintage restricted list there's some embarrassing shit on there just because it's an artifact <laughs> like rather than restrict shops they restricted every artifact that's worth playing um i i repost this screenshot like once a year it's the one where they announced that uh eye of Ugin is banned in modern uh because that same announcement was the one where they restricted lodestone golem uh they made this giant passage it was like uh, rather than ban a number of creatures, we figured it would make more sense to ban a single land that enables them. Eye of Ugin is banned. The very next line, Lodestone Golem is restricted in Vintage. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the same announcement. They said all of that in the same breath. And like, uh, I, and then like after I won champs that year, everyone was like, PO is busted. Restrict PO. And... I was the one, I mean, obviously I was a little biased, but like, I was the one who was like, wait, 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 if we restrict PO, then we're going to have to start restricting shops again. Like, so let's just let a blue deck eat shops and then uh, let, let's play it like that. I'm not going to name the individual, but there was an article written that was about how vintage would be better if five cards were restricted. It was like Foundry Inspector was number two. And I was like, this isn't the the red, like... This isn't like the canary dying in the coal mine. You know what I mean? Like 
if you think that foundry inspector is the issue, there's a bigger thing going on here. All right. So let's move on to the next deck down the down the line, and that's Doomsday. Doomsday is, in my opinion, the best Dark Ritual deck in the format. If PO is the best combo deck, Doomsday is definitely the best Dark Ritual deck, only because DPS is trash. Uh, don't play DPS. It's a trap, and that's Dark Petition Storm. So, like Doomsday, you get to be a combo and control deck, but you're more combo than control, unlike PO. Uh, you're fast and very consistent. Like You turn one and turn two at a very high rate, which makes the deck very terrifying to play against. And... Uh, it's become a lot easier to play due to Thassa's Oracle, much like Legacy. Like, there used to be this big mystery behind Doomsday with how difficult it was to play. That's not the case anymore. If you're afraid of Doomsday, it's because you haven't tried. Like, the deck is much easier to play, especially in Vintage, where, like, any idiot that knows how to put Black Lotus and Ancestral Recall and Thassa's Oracle into a pile can win. Like, it's really easy. So, just try it out. I'm sure you'll do just fine. Like I said, Doomsday is a combo control deck, five Force of Wills in the main deck, Force of Negation, three Flusterstorm, two days, and a Mystical Dispute. That's a lot of counterspell interaction, and that's because the deck, unlike PO, doesn't have to play as many pieces. Like, you're not playing Mox Opals. You're not playing Mana Vault and Mana Crypt. You're not playing all these extra cards just to make mana to do your own thing. Your own thing is already so compact that you get to run a bunch of cantrips, things like that, just to make sure that when you eventually cast your Doomsday, you're going to win that same turn. So it's a good it's a good deck. There's a lot of play to it. I think the one downside, at least in my opinion, is that there's no real good plan B. If your opponent gets you, there's not a whole lot of wiggling out. Like you have one Chain of Vapor in your deck and you have to find it, cast it, and then try to do your thing again. Yeah, I'm not going to add much because I, I want to keep it moving. I But I think Bryant is right. Doomsday is extremely powerful. It's the best ritual deck uh, if you like ritual combo, and it's easier than it looks. Though it is, it is not that easy. You do need to get some reps if you want to play this at Eternal Weekend, but it is it is not the insurmountable. Uh, you don't need to read Stephen Menendian's book anymore to to know how to play Doomsday. Brian, why don't you talk a little bit about Xerox because I know that's a deck you're considering this weekend. Yes, uh, so. For me, the, the choices for this weekend are PO or Xerox, and those are my only choices. I, I will pick one or the other before this Friday, and I will play that deck in all three events, or at least that archetype. Uh, I may switch around the colors or, you know, whatever, but I will be playing Xerox or PO in this event. Um, Can we state the obvious? What do you mean by Xerox for our legacy? All right, business? yes. Yes, good question. So Xerox uh, is a brand of copy machine. And this deck is named after a copy machine because it plays every cantrip you're allowed to play and it just draws cards and it, it makes every game look the same. Like that's your goal. You want to draw lots and lots of cards. You want to have every answer and then you want to win. And uh, you just, that's, this is the consistency we talked about. Uh, we talked about bug first, which is a Xerox deck. Uh, it is not, uh, like Brian said, it isn't quite as good as at drawing cards as the uh, uh, Jeskai and Rug versions, but uh, that's also a Xerox deck, and the consistency is what we're talking about here. Like you, you want to see that same picture come off the copy machine every round, and that's the plan. Uh, you're you're never going to PO for five and whiff with a Xerox deck, so that's what it's named for. Um, like I said, 
Uh, I'm talking about Xerox at large. Uh, the notes that we have that I'm reading off of is specifically Jeskai Xerox. Uh, but since we already talked about bug a bit for the, the core reasons, I, I'm going to just talk about the, uh, the differences here. So the uh, bug deck is like the solid one. It, it blows up permanence the best. Uh, like Brian said, the Jeskai one, uh, that one has the best removal because you get Swords to Plowshares. Uh, you also get Lavinia. And Lavinia is a serious banger in Vintage. Uh, Lavinia is a uh, blue-white 2-2 legend. Uh, your opponent can't cast non-creature spells that cost that have a higher converted mana cost than the number of lands they control. And Vintage is all about cheating on mana. And if your opponent casts any spell that they didn't spend mana on, counter it. So <clears throat> things in Vintage that may cost zero mana, include Force of Will, Force of Negation, Chalice of the Void, Every Mox, Hogak, uh, anything that comes off of a Mind's Desire or an Urza Flip, like all of these things, the number of things that suddenly get turned off with Lavinia in play is incredible. And Lavinia is the reason to be Jeskai compared to Collector Oof being the reason to be Rug or Bug. Uh, you All Jeskai decks get a Hate Bear, uh, Lavinia is the most powerful of them, though. If she comes down early, uh, Dredge, literally just every every spell that comes out of Dredge, uh, Cabal Therapy, Dread Return, all the pitch spells, they all cost zero. And they all have converted mana costs higher than the number of lands in play, for the most part. So uh, Lavinia is a serious wall to get over. Um, the uh, Rug... The Z Rug and Jeskai compared to Bug get Red Blast, which we've talked about at length already. Uh, Pyroblast is a totally main deckable card. Uh, these The red-based Xerox decks tend to dunk on Paradoxical Outcome pretty hard, at least in the main deck. Uh, then, then you get to play the sideboard level game. Um, the Rug version gets uh, Tarmogoyf and Renin 6. Uh, Renin 6... Uh, surprisingly insane in vintage uh you might think that because of the mox in like recurring wastelands not as good as it was in legacy but it's still as good especially when you're pressuring uh the rug version has like main deck ancient grudge it has collector oof you turn off the artifact mana then you squeeze them out with ren plus strip mine uh all of these decks are trying to squeeze what the opponent's doing while drawing cards and it's just what flavor of doing that you want to take so one of the things that I didn't initially realize about Mana Denial in Vintage was that it's surprisingly easy to cut opponents off of colors, despite all these Moxen existing, because a lot of decks are playing off-color Moxen that don't contribute to their primary plans, and they're largely colorless mana. So there have been a lot of games where I wasteland someone, and it actually takes them off of two of their primary colors, and they're left with this, like, Mox Emerald that they can't do anything with. Yep. Uh, it, it might as well be Mox nothing, just Eldrazi Mox, Tribal Mox Eldrazi. It's, uh, it, Vintage, like, the first battlefield in every game of Vintage is going to be mana. Like, people are going to be trying to jump ahead with their Mox in, uh, you're going to be, and, well, both people are going to be trying to jump ahead with Mox in, and both people are going to try to squeeze that in some way. Uh, whether it's, uh, like, something like Null Rod or Wasteland, or it could just be killing you over the top of your fast mana with even faster mana. But uh, mana is the primary battlefield of Vintage. And these decks, uh, the Xerox decks are pretty 
pretty honest. Uh, they generally don't play off-color Moxin uh, because, like Phil said, they don't contribute to what you need to do. Uh, and these decks frequently have Null Rod, Stony Silence, Collector Roof in them. So uh, you limit your exposure to that while being like pretty honest about uh, your color uh, costs. So these decks, uh, they port a lot of legacy skills over. Um, if, you, if you like any of the fair blue decks, if you're a, a Delver player, uh, you, you would probably like Xerox. Um, important to note, it is not a tempo deck. Um, the, don't be fooled by the days in the deck. Uh, it does not play like Delver. It plays like a prison deck, but you just have blue cards instead of uh, artifacts and enchantments. Uh, games will go long. Uh, your moto clock will be a concern, especially in mirror matches. Uh, you have a lot of triggers. You have Dreadhorde Arcanist. Uh, you have a lot of decisions to make. Uh, you cast that preordain, you scry two, draw one, attack, cast the preordain again, it finds ponder, you ponder, you find brainstorm, you brainstorm into ancestral recall, you mystic sanctuary to do it again, and like suddenly you're out of time. So uh, keep in mind that this you're signing up for a slog if you play these decks, but they are rock solid against the field. I do just want to make one point, and I'm glad Brian uh, mentioned Dreadhorde Arcanist. It's the reason to be on the rug, rug or just guy, the red Xerox lists, because you do get to abuse Ancestral Recall the most. Like I mentioned it a little bit in the bug section, but between Days, Gush, Mystic Sanctuary, Dreadhorde, you really do get to abuse Ancestral Recall. Countering Merchant Scroll or Mystical Tutor, it's not a bad play. And if they're playing black, so if it's like the four color list with death rate, but it's still a Xerox shell, don't be afraid to counter the tutor that gets ancestral because you're going to be shutting them off. In the past, there's the this book of rules that you do in vintage. It's like you never counter the tutor. Rule seven B. Don't play by those rules. Like things change. Encountering the tutor to go get ancestral is certainly fine in today's age. Yep. Uh. Uh. For playing against Xerox, like I said, they take a long time to win. Um, Bryant's pro tip for Magic Online is never concede to Xerox. Make them kill you. Uh, yes. <laughs> like M Monastery Mentor is their only fast way to kill you, and only the Just Guy version has that. So uh, they will just chug a chug of their clock down. Feel free to just F6 through your turns. If they uh, strip all your lands and you have no permanence, just F6 and eat up their clock. Uh, that that's part of the game. Get in there. Exactly. Why don't we move on to the next deck? I know that Phil has a little bit of experience with this one, so we'll let him talk about it. Okay. So there are two Vine decks in Vintage. There's a Hogak Vine deck and a Hollow Vine deck. Uh, so let's start with the Hogak Vine. It's the more popular of the two options, and it really is conceptually similar to Legacy Hogak. Uh, you'll see a lot of the cards from that deck, such as Stitcher Supplier, Vengevine, Bloodgast, Hogak, but you get to play Bizarre Baghdad to try to do broken things and keep up with vintage standards. This deck is not like, say, a dredge deck in vintage, where you have no mana sources. You actually can cast lots of fair cards like Collector Oof and Deathrite Shaman, in addition to trying to just funnel your graveyard. Um, so I believe this deck is supposed to be pretty good against a lot of the, the fair blue strategies. You just gain the ability to grind through a, or ignore a lot of things that the decks are, are doing. So I beat a, an Oko with 15 counters on it today, for example, just by, like, 
redeploying a Hogak a couple of times, and my opponent couldn't end up beating the Vengevines that came with it. So one of the things about this deck is it's not very good against combo. Like, it's game one. Like, you have to get pretty lucky to win. Like, you have to open up your bizarre and avenge vine hollow one hollow one swing next turn swing like that's how you beat combo in game one but then game two you get mind break trap collector oof deafening silence you already have main deck force of vigors so your game plan changes a lot between game one and game two and that's part of the reason why i'm really having trouble sideboarding with this deck because like you bring in a lot of cards but you're also an engine deck and if you cut too many of the enablers, your payoff cards aren't as good. Um, I was really having trouble figuring out, like, what I should be cutting. Uh, so, like, if you're going to play this, like, make sure you have a sideboard plan because you're boarding in so many cards for the combo matchups. For sure. And having Force of Vigor makes you reasonably well against the prison decks. You're actually not casting some of your things, too, so that can help. Uh like a sphere effect doesn't really stop a hollow one from coming down. For example, it still costs six less for off of bizarre Baghdad. All right. So the hollow vine deck is pretty different. I know they're both decks that have hollow one and Venge vine in them, but hollow vine, it's essentially like you're playing rug Delver and vintage, which is pretty crazy considering it's a deck that mulligans to bizarre Baghdad. And you have effects like, uh, I'm blanking on the name now. The green free spell, put it. Once upon a time. So you have once upon a time to find your bazaar. And then you just, you have squeeze in your deck. And then you have venge vines and hollow ones. Your entire game plan, along with brasking root walla, is to get venge vines into play. And then you play force of will, force of negation, force of vigor, mind trap, misdirection. And all these cards are main deck. You don't play lands. So like, or I shouldn't say that you play very few lands. You have strip mine wasteland and sometimes guys cradle cradle pumps your root wallas and pays for tabernacles. Those are the lands that you play. So you have all this extra room, which means that you get to play like 20 plus free interaction spells. So like legacy Delver, you're playing an efficient threat on turn one and then just disrupting your opponent until that threat kills them. But you also have this really strong late game plan by playing four copies of squee goblin to Bob and bizarre Baghdad and every turn, after like turn three or four, you're just drawing two extra cards a turn. So it's really, really powerful. The problem is that it's not very good against hate. Like Leyline of the Void, for example, is a pretty big issue for this deck. You do have Force of Vigor, but if you're able to protect your hate against them, the deck falls apart. So like Brian said, Lavinia, for example, they can't cast any of this with a Lavinia in play. So Lavinia counters Hollow One. And their entire game plan then becomes to cast two spells and trigger Venge Vines. So that's what the game becomes about. It's just like, if you're trying to beat this deck, come up with a game plan and stick to it. That sounds kind of terrifying. I might need to give that deck a spin just to see how it feels to just play a big stupid threat and then force a handful of times and just end games. Yeah, I, I gotta tell you, I, I did a PO league last night. I went one and four. I played against three different Vengevine decks, and this one was BS. Like, if this deck keeps seven, you lose. Like, they're, you gotta hope they mulligan to five, and then the, they play like Bazaar down to four, activate Bazaar, uh, down to three. Like, you gotta hope they shred their own hand with Bazaar trying to get on board. Because you're not going to play through it. <laughs> and it's 
And because they're a bizarre deck that wants to put their whole hand in the graveyard anyway, it's not even a real cost to just pitch two things to force you. It's uh, it's bad times. Um, oh, it looks like Bryant lost power. Uh, he just texted us, and he is frozen. So Phil and I are going to continue plowing through this as well as we can. All right, so let's let's talk about Dredge, because I think Dredge is a very different sort of bizarre deck from the two Vine decks. So Dredge is largely an all-in bizarre deck, and every time that you're activating bizarre, you're doing something incredibly broken with it, whereas a lot of times the Vine decks are trying to mine value and dig towards specific things. Dredge is all about, like, dumping a creature into the graveyard and really doing disgusting, very powerful things extremely quickly with that bizarre. Yes, uh, Dredge is the, the like, Hogak shell pushed to the max. I guess it's the opposite. The Hogak shell is Dredge uh, <clears throat> light. Like, it's, it's Dredge with a little more play. Um, so, <clears throat> the... Like, Dredge is the original, like, vintage Dredge horrifying your whole deck's in the graveyard on turn three. If you don't have graveyard hate, you're dead. Yeah, so time was that Dredge was the boogeyman of the format, and you just really had to play graveyard hate to respect specifically that deck. But it's my understanding now that Dredge is an option rather than a pillar of the format. Am I correct there? Yes, uh, Bizarre is a pillar, Dredge is a Bizarre deck you can play. But this isn't the only way to abuse the graveyard, right? Like, there's there's a vintage Breach deck very much reminiscent of the Legacy version, but with more restricted pawn cards. Right. So why why might someone want to play Breach? What's, what's the appeal there? Uh, like Brian said earlier, Breach, uh, it's basically Xerox, but instead of you know, sticking Lavinia and eventually Monastery Mentor, you just surprise I'm a brain freeze deck and you combo them out after they've sculpted a hand that could like answer Mentor or answer Dreadhorde Arcanist. You just combo them out instead. Uh, it's a lot like we talked about how uh, PO is combo control and Doomsday is also combo control, but a little more combo. Breach is combo control, but a lot more control. It's just this tight little breach package that, uh, when you get around to it, uh, late game, you have some extra mana laying around, you start looping that Black Lotus with a surprise breach on like turn six or seven, and suddenly your opponent has no deck. So that's the appeal of breach. So when I've looked at this deck, it's still playing an alternate sideboard plan, right? Like it still has the sprite dragons out of the sideboard that the PO decks normally have. Right. Yep. Uh, it does play those. Um, the main deck is uh, susceptible to graveyard hate, which is a problem in a format where everyone is boarding for Dredge and Hogak. Uh, so you get a lot of splash damage here. You need a sideboard pivot to function. Um, the The cool thing about the combo, though, is that it does not fold to Red Blast uh, because your engine is a red card, uh, not, a, not a blue card like P.O., so it, it is a combo deck that does, and your your combo piece, your engine is also an enchantment, not a spell. So uh, Doomsday, Yogmothswell, Paradoxical Outcome all get flusterstormed. Uh, Underworld Breach just doesn't. Uh, it's very hard to counter that card with any sort of soft or conditional permission. All right. So 
this this isn't the full range of what Vintage has to offer. These are just a lot of the popular decks. There, there's also Oath of Druids. There's Ravager Shops, Abzan Humans, a four-color Xerox version. Uh, I don't even know what DPS is. Is that another Storm variant? Yeah, that's Dark Petition Storm. That is the uh, Ritual into Tendrils, uh, the, the Ad Nauseum Tendrils of the format. It uses Dark Petition instead of Ad Nauseum. Uh, that deck, I, I don't think it's going to hold up in a 9 or 10 round tournament. Um, it has a horrendous Paradoxical Outcome matchup because PO has a faster Goldfish and Force of Will of its own. Uh, DPS does not play Force of Will. It plays Duress and Defense Grid as its disruption. Um, DPS is excellent against Xerox. Uh, there's a nice little rock, paper, scissors where uh, Xerox beats PO, which beats DPS, which beats Xerox. Uh, but unless you're ca- really counting on a heavy, heavy Xerox field, I don't think DPS is a great choice. Uh, it, it also, against shops, like shops, when the shops is on the play, <laughs> your percentage just plummets. I, I think it's like pretty close to like 80 20, depending on play draw. From both wow. sides. That's insane. Yeah, it, it's pretty egregious. Uh, I, I would not recommend that deck for a 10-round tournament. Uh, it's a lot of fun to play through a league, though, while you have the god account. Yeah. Um, just kind of finishing the thought there. Like, there are a lot of vintage options other than the ones that we chose to highlight in this episode. The The format is, is large. There's a bunch of powerful things that you can do, and there's options. And for those of you looking to check out Vintage for Eternal Weekend specifically, I hope we've given you something to kind of use as a starting point. I've been having a blast playing leagues. Um, I'm through one and a half leagues now. I'll probably play another two, three, five this week, depending on how hard I decide to go into Eternal Weekend prep. Um, But I'm loving it. Yeah, the format is a lot of fun. Uh, I want to give people the the speech that I always give people who are trying vintage for the first time. And that's to remind them that vintage is where magic's mistakes go to die. Uh, This format is full of bullshit. Like the entire legacy ban list, you can play at least one of in vintage. And those cards are banned for a reason. Uh, There will be some bad games where like, it looks like you're having a good time. You're playing back and forth. And then your opponent just draws ancestral recall into snapcaster ancestral recall and what was a good game up to that point is just horseshit now. And that is going to happen. Uh, sometimes you're going to keep a hand with like uh, Shattering Spree, uh, Ancient Grudge, uh, like the most hateful artifact things. And instead of like Sphere of Resistance, they play Trinisphere. And you never cast a single one of your shatters. Like the, this format is full of bullshit. And it's going to happen to you, but you're also going to do it to them. And... Uh, if if you come in with this like uh, mentality of the better player should always win, uh, I played tighter, so I deserve the win. Like you're gonna be disappointed. Um, you're you're gonna play some of the best games of your life, the most exciting, the most dynamic. You and you're gonna play a lot of non games too. Uh, that's that just comes with the territory. Yeah, it's also not the turn one format that it has the reputation for being like. Basically, all of the games that I have played have been relatively intricate and interesting. Yes, some of the, like, turn one crazy god hands happen on both sides of the battlefield, uh, but there have also been these games where they have been just, like, nail biters, wastelands happening back and forth, everyone's mana is off, we're stuck on one land, we're trying to draw out of it, 
Um, there's there's a lot of cool things going on in the format. Definitely, you're gonna you're gonna play a lot of magic. Don't think that in ten rounds you're gonna play twenty turns. <laughs> it's not actually like that at all. So, Brian, at the beginning of the episode, you said you're kind of between two decks. Do you want to remind our viewers what uh, what you're thinking about playing this weekend? Yeah, it's Xerox or it's PO. And uh, I'm going to spend the next uh, two nights and Friday morning uh, in as many leagues as I can get. I'm unfortunately pretty busy this league I'll, or this week. I'll probably only get like three to five leagues in total. But I think that should be enough to uh, get me where I need to be. Uh, I, I'm pretty familiar with the format already. Yeah, Brian's been playing a lot of PO, uh, and he's he's called his shot there. He's made his bed. He's going to tune a list and go in with that. Yeah, Bryant has won many vintage challenges and top-aided many more with PO over the last couple of months. He's been on a tear. I mean, you listen to the podcast, you know every week he's like, yeah, I, I uh, won the vintage challenge again with PO. So... He's called his shot. He's playing PO in all three events, so he's going to do it. And I'm at the point where if I feel like I am proficient enough in Vintage that I don't think I'm wasting my money, I will absolutely play in the Sunday Eternal Weekend event. Um, we'll just kind of see how leagues go the next couple of days. Either either way, I'm going to spend this week playing Vintage because I'm just having fun doing it, and it's a nice uh, change of pace while people are interested in the content. All right. Well, let's hope that uh, Brian's uh, recording has held up uh, and hope we can have a functional podcast here. And thanks for listening. All right. Have a great rest of the day, folks, wherever you are.